Hello and welcome to a new season of Spiritual Lunacy. In this season, I intend to explore uh, spiritual works which are not all that well known by saints who uh, have been kept secret or rather a lot of people have not read them or heard about them, maybe heard about them but not really explored their works, maybe some poetry also by them. I want to start off this first episode with a rather favorite work of mine called Kali the Mother. This piece is written by Sister Nivedita or Margaret Nobel. She was a disciple of Swami Vivekananda, an Irish woman. Few people know her in India, but not many have really read her works. A remarkable spiritual giant. Her understanding of Hinduism, symbols in Hinduism are exceptional. She follows very closely in the steps of her master Vivekananda and has both worlds of Vedanta, the non-dual uh, approach and the dual approach to reaching the divine. And in this particular work, she explores the symbol of Kali and Shiva in Hinduism. Kali is often known as the fearful god and uh, in a lot of Western narratives, completely distorted. Um, she's not some hideous demon out there, but uh, I have uh, seen a lot of, uh, often I would like to term it as illiterate representation of uh, symbols of uh, culture or religion. Um, but to those who have actually been on any spiritual path and have been a seeker, Kali is a very important symbol and goddess in Hindu religion. She, of course, cannot be seen just separately from uh, by herself. There is also the idea of Shiva, um, her consort. Now, in Hinduism, symbols are very important. It is not so much about a deity, but what they represent. And... Uh, this work is remarkable and this is where I want to start off this episode with Kali, the mother. Our daily life creates our symbol of God. No two ever cover quite the same conception. It is so with that symbolism which we know as language. The simple daily needs of mankind seem the world over to be one. We look, therefore, for words that correspond in every land. Yet we know how the tongue of each people expresses some one group of ideas with special clearness and ignores others altogether. Never do we find an identical strength and weakness repeated. And always, if we go deep enough, we can discover in the circumstances and habits of a country a cause for its specific difference of thought or of expression. In the north we speak of a certain hour as twilight, implying a space of time between the day and night. In India the same moments receive the name of time of union, since there is no period of half-light, the hours of sun and darkness seeming to touch each other in a point. The illustration can be carried further. In the world, glooming lies for us a wealth of associations, the throbbing of the falling dusk, the tenderness of homecoming, the last sleepy laughter of children, 
The same emotional note is struck in Indian languages by the expression at the R of cow dust. How graphic is the difference? Yonder beyond the grass, the cowgirl leads her cattle home to the village for the night. The word cow dust indeed strikes a whole vein of expression peculiar to the eastern land. One thing I wanted to add in here to anyone listening, this book was written around the late 1800s, early 1900s, these essays. So there might be certain references to that period of time. So please keep that in mind. Something of the same sort is true of religious symbols. Short of perfect realization, we must see the eternal light through a mask imposed by our own thought. To no two of us, probably, is the mask quite in the same place. The mask is created by our own thought, directly and indirectly, through the reaction of custom upon thought. Like all wheels, it brings at once vision and the limiting of vision. Only by realizing the full sense of every symbol can we know the whole thought of humanity about God. But down with all masks, the uncreated flame itself we long for, without symbol or wheel or barrier. If we cannot see God and live, let us then die. What is there to fear? Consume us in primal fire, dissolve us into living ocean, but interpose nothing, no, nor the shadow of anything, between the soul and the divine draught for which it thirsts. Now this para, you know, it's very typical of uh, Vivekananda's uh, thought process and this is where I was speaking about the disciple and uh, teacher relationship coming into place. Uh, Vivekananda was a was a very bold, bold monk. He always said there is no time for wishy-washy truths. There is only one truth and you have to reach it. You have to be bold and reach it. Don't get lost in, you know, things. Just reach that fire. And this is where, you know, when I read this part, it reminds me pretty much of his teaching. So I can imagine what the disciple has also kind of, uh, she's also picked up that entire thought process and that boldness. Yet for each of us there is a chosen way. We ourselves may still be seeking it where and when still hidden from our eyes, but deep in our hearts is rooted the assurance that the moment will yet come. The secret signal be exchanged, the mystic name will fall upon our ears and somewhere, somewhere, somehow our feet shall pass within the gates of peace. We shall enter on the road that ends only with the beautific vision. Till then, well, says the old Hindu poet of the folk song to himself, Tulsi coming into this world, seek thou to live with all, for who knows where or in what guise the Lord himself may come to thee? Our daily life creates a symbol of God. To the Arab of the desert with his patriarchal customs, the father of the family, just and calm in his judgments, protector of his kindred, loving to those who played about his knees as babes, may well stand as the type of all in which men feel security. Naturally, then, it was the Semitic mind that flashed across the dim communing of the soul with the eternal, the rapturous illumination of the great word Father. But it is in India that this thought of the mother has been realized in its completeness. 
in that country where the image of Kali is one of the most popular symbols of deity, it is quite customary to speak of God as she, and the direct address then offered is simply Mother. But under what strange guise? In the West, art and poetry have been exhausted to associate all that is tender and precious with this thought of woman worship. The mother plays with the little one, caresses him or nurses him. Sometimes she even makes her arm a throne where he sits to bless the world. In the East, the accepted symbol is of a woman, nude with flowing hair, so dark a blue that she seems to be the colour black, four-handed, two hands in the act of blessing, two holding a knife and bleeding head respectively, garlanded with skulls and dancing with protruding tongue on the prostrate figure of a man, all white with ashes. Now, this is a very, very common picture of Kali in India. She is shown as uh, a goddess standing with her hair all over. She's standing on a male figure who is known as Shiva with one foot on his chest, her tongue protruding out and the surroundings are of a cemetery. This is a very common picture. I'm describing this, you know, as simply as possible because it's a podcast, but it's a very common symbol and image of Kali. This is how people have depicted her. A terrible and extraordinary figure. Those who call it horrible may well be forgiven. They pass only through the outer court of the temple. They are not arrived where the mother's voice can reach them. This in its own way is well. Yet this image, so fearful to the Western mind, is perhaps dearer than any other to the heart of India. It is not indeed the only form in which the divine energy presents herself to her worshippers. But Kali comes closer to us than these. Others we admire, others we love, to her we belong. Whether we know it or not, we are her children playing round her knees, Life is but a game of hide-and-seek with her. And if in the course we chance to touch her feet, who can measure the shock of the divine energy that enters into us? Who can utter the rapture of our cry of mother? The next chapter in this series of essays is called The Vision of Shiva. Now, Shiva is perhaps the most loved god in Hinduism. Everybody loves Shiva. He is supposed uh, to be easy to please. Everybody finds a refuge in him. He's friend to humans. He's friend to animals, serpents, everybody. And he's a very non-uncomplicated god. Hindu culture, he is perhaps, like I said, the most beloved god. Of course, everything in Hinduism is a symbol of something. In Hindu religion, there's a belief that God can be approached in any way. You can see him as a figure, which is supposed to be the dualistic aspect where you worship him as mother, father, or, you know, create a connection with him. Or you could think that uh, you are one, which is the more Vedantic idea of uh, religion. But both these ideas somewhere overlap. And so do these symbols. It's almost like these symbols take you beyond the symbol to finally experience truth and God as one and basically you being the eternal spirit. 
So the vision of Shiva, it starts off with the beautiful couplet by Walt Whitman, the American poet. Dark mother, always gliding near with soft feet, have none chanted for thee a chant of fullest welcome. It may have been that the forefathers saw it in the mountains or it may have been elsewhere. Somewhere it came to the Hindu mind that the beauty of snow peaks and moonlight and standing water was different from all other loveliness of colour and profusion and many channeled scene. It was as though nature, the great mother, were clothed in raiment of green, broidered with birds and flowers and fruits and wheeled in blue, adorned with many jewels, and yet as if amidst all the restless pomp and clamour of her glory, would shine through now and then a hint of something different. Something white and asture and pure, something compelling, quiet, something silent, passionless and eternally alone. Wherever the Hindu looked, he found this duality repeated. Light and shadow, attraction, repulsion, microcosm, macrocosm, cause and effect. He looked at human life itself and he found humanity as man and woman, soul and body. Here was a clue. On the plane of symbolism, the soul of things somehow became associated with the manly form and the manifested energy. Nature as we call it with that of woman and motherhood. So basically, you know, when there is no play or the soul is at rest, it, it came to be associated with the male aspect and the feminine aspect is of movement of nature. Nature as we call it with that of woman and motherhood. In this conception will be noted the deliberate statement that God and nature are necessary to each other as the complementary manifestation of the one. That is to say nature itself is God as truly as nature's soul the Indian sages say, look closer, brother. They are not even two, but one. Under this aspect, the one existence is known as Purush. Purush is usually the, is the male form and Prakriti, which is the feminine aspect. And they both end up being soul and energy. The highest representation of the divine is always human. For the application of their symbols is many-centered, like the fire and opals. The Purush and the Prakriti utters a great principle. The relation of God to nature is one demonstration of it. The soul and experience offer us another. The dynamo and the force that charges it would be a third. The last illustration deserves a moment's attention. Everywhere we see the phenomenon of one waiting to be touched by another in order to manifest power and activity. The two are known in India as Shiva and Shakti. As the knight waits for the sight of his own Lord, powerless without the inspiration of her touch, as the disciple waits the master and finds in him at last the meaning of all his life before, so the soul lies inert, passive, unstirred by the external till the great moment comes and it looks up at the shock of some divine catastrophe to know in a flash that the whole of the without, the whole of life, time and nature and experience like the within is also God. It is a beautiful vision, says the West. It is a realization of the self here and now. 
declares the East. Of such a moment is the Kali image, a symbol, the soul opening its eyes upon the world and seeing God. We have seen that anthropomorphic representation of the divine is absolutely necessary to human nature. But to learn the manner and method of the expression, we must know the whole heart and feeling of a people. To us, ideal manhood includes the king to the master, the father. When she is speaking of to us, she is speaking of the western mind, like I told you, she was an Irish lady. So, there is the concept of the west and the east here. The father must be supreme, he goes forth with his armies as general and sovereign. Such is the anthropomorphism of the West. How strangely different is that of India? Their life has one test, one standard and one alone. Does a man know God or not? That is all. No questions of fruits, no question of activity, no question of happiness. Only has the soul set out on the quest of realization. And so, the great God of the Hindu imagination is a beggar. Like I told you, Shiva is not a god who wears fancy clothes. He is covered with the ashes of his sacrificial fire so that he is white like snow, his hair growing untended in huge masses. He is oblivious of cold or heat, silent, remote from men. He sits absorbed in eternal meditation. Those human eyes of his are half-closed. Though worlds are uttered and destroyed with every breath, it is nothing to him. All comes and goes before him like a dream. Such is the meaning of the curious unrealism of the image. But one faculty is all activity, whether it has been indrawn, all the forces of the senses. Upright in the middle of the forehead looks forth the third eye, the eye of inner vision. It is natural then that Shiva, the great God, set forth as ideal manhood should be known amongst other names as the wondrous eyed. He is the refuge of animals. About his neck have wound the serpents whom none else would receive. Never did he turn any away, the mad, the centric, the crazed, the queer, the half-witted among men. For all these there is room with Shiva. His love will embrace even the demonic. He accepts that which all else rejects. He possesses very little. Only the old bull on which he rides and the tiger skin of meditation and a string or two of praying beads, no more. Every uh, god and goddess in Indian religion, they usually have an animal uh, which, they, which accompanies them. And for Shiva, it's an old bull. He is known as the Nandi. So that's the reference of the old bull. And last of all, he's so easily pleased. Could any trait be so exquisite as this? Only pure water and a few grains of rice and a green leaf or two may be offered to him daily. For the great God in matters of the world is very simple and sets no store by things for which we struggle and lie and slay our fellow men for. Such is the picture that springs to the Indian mind as representing the soul of the universe, Shiva, the all-merciful, the destroyer of the ignorance, the great God. So he's essentially what represents the soul in Hinduism. The soul is peaceful, quiet, undisturbed, requires nothing. Perfect renunciation, perfect absorption in eternity. These things alone are worthy to be told concerning him. 
he is known to be the sweetest of the sea, sweet, the most terrible of the terrible, the lord of heroes and the wondrous eyed. Listen to the prayer that rises through him from worshippers through the length and breadth of India. From the unreal, lead us to the real. From darkness, lead us into light. From death, lead us to immortality. Reach us through and through ourselves, and evermore protect us, O Thou terrible, from ignorance by Thy sweet, compassionate face. He is the Purush or the soul. He is the concert or the spouse of Maya, nature, the fleeting diversity of sense. It is in this relation that we find Him beneath the feet of Kali. His recumbent posture signifies his inertness, the soul untouched and indifferent to the external. Kali has been executing a wild dance of carnage. On all sides she has left evidence of her reign of terror. The garland of skulls around her neck, still in her hand, she holds the bloody weapon and a freshly severed head. This is pretty much the traditional way Kali is represented in pictures like I told you. And then suddenly she has stepped unwittingly on the body of her husband. Her foot is on his breast. He looks up, awakened by that touched, and they are gazing into each other's eyes. Her right hand raised an involuntary blessing, and her tongue makes an exaggerated gesture of shyness and surprise, one common to Indian women of the villages. And he, what does he see? To him she is all beauty. This woman, nude and terrible and black, who tells the name of God on the skulls of the dead, who creates the bloodshed on which demons fatten, who slays rejoicing and repents not and blesses him, only that lies crushed beneath her feet. Her mass of black hair flows behind her like the wind or like time, the drift and the passage of things. So you see, each part of the picture is actually nothing but a symbol. The open hair is nothing but time. But to the great third eye, even time is one, and that one, God. She is blue almost to blackness like a mighty shadow, bare like the dread realities of life and death. But for him there is no shadow. Deep into the heart of the most terrible, he looks unshrinking, and in the ecstasy of recognition, he calls her her mother. So shall ever be the union of the soul with God. Do we understand what the background is from which such a thought as this could spring? For the Kali image is not so much a picture of the deity as the utterance of the secret of our own lives. The soul in realization beholds the mother. How? The picture of green lawns and smiling skies and flowers cannot deceive the all-knower under the apparent loveliness he sees life preying on life, rivers breaking down, the comet poised in mid-space to strike. Around him rises up the wail of all creatures, the moan of pain, sob of great cry of fear. Is the world as the Hindu mind is predisposed to see? Verily, says the heart, verily, death is greater than life, yea, and better. Now, you have to understand here, death is not like a physical death. The death here referring to, being referred to is that of the egoic mind. Not so the supreme soul in its hour of vision. No covered sigh of exhaustion, no selfish prayer for mercy, no idle resignation there. Bend low and you shall hear the answer that India makes to the eternal motherhood through all her ages of torture and despair. Listen well, for the voice is low that speaks and the crash of ruin mighty. Though thou slay me, yet will I trust in thee. 
after all has any one of us found god in any other form than in this in the vision of shiva have not the great institutions of our life all come to us in moments when the cup was bitterest has it not always been with sobs of desolation that we have seen the absolute triumphant in love behold we also o mother are thy children thou slay us yet we will trust in thee the hour is gone and the vision is passed away the vision of the greatest symbol perhaps a man has ever imagined for himself so the entire concept of shiva and kali is nothing but awakening kali who is constantly creating she represents life i mean we are all caught up in life unable to see our real nature and suddenly one day she steps on her husband shiva shiva who is the epitome of stillness calmness the soul which is ever changing never changing needs nothing and she looks down and she is reminded of her true nature shiva looks back at her acknowledging the entire play and so i'm going to end to today's reading here i'll come back with more readings from this same book in the next episode